It's very quiet in here. I know it's supposed to be, but can you hear how quiet it is right now? And it's not because you're asleep. Sometimes there's a quietness in here after lunch, sometimes. It's not that kind of quiet. Sometimes you get another kind of quiet that's a more frozen kind of quiet. You know that one as well, you know, when you're little and you're told to be quiet. And you... I'm not sure it's that one either. If it is, have a breath for you personally, if you are kind of seized, waiting. But have a generous breath into the silence of the early evening. Just have a pause. You've put a lot of work in just by showing up again and again and coming back on to your seat, to your cushion, to the walking, to the phrases, being willing to keep at it. And that's why I think I noticed the silence has a sort of different quality right now in here. And it's a time in the retreat where um, we can really deepen. You've done a lot of the, the groundwork, we could say. I was reminded um, at when we were in that circle outside earlier, actually, um, ha- how this orientation of metta, of well-wishing for other beings, can become a kind of a default setting. It's kind of a reconditioning the engine in this way, in a skillful way. And I was reminded of um, somebody who used to be the resident teacher here, um, who some of you may know, called Bhante Bodhidharma. He's a monk, lovely man from Manchester, I think. He's been a monk for many, many years. And when he walks around the house and he would greet us in the reception or in the dining room, staff dining room, and he would beam and he'd say, Peace and joy, Catherine. Peace and joy. And he did it to everyone. It wasn't, I didn't get special treatment. That's part of, part of what Meta is, actually. It was that... that um, and every time I see him, he still says it. It's the automatic response in seeing another being. It can be. We can set and we can tune and train to that particular orientation. And if he is anything to go by, it looked like it made him happy. There's something about orienting in that way that really does conduce to happiness. We may not know that yet for ourselves. We may today have been with struggle or difficulty and just glimpses of possibility or maybe you've been really with the sense of possibility and and widening and softening with this so i'd like to speak a little bit tonight about any of uh, any of the things that might have seemed to come in the way today from the perspective of um, our awaken our awakening We are not short in lovingness. We don't have to kind of crank up to be more loving. We simply 
need to value that as an orientation and see what's in the way, what is obscuring this uncramped, unbounded heart. What is obscuring that from being known directly and from being lived directly? So the orientation of metta starts putting us in this pool where we're valuing this quality. We're valuing this aspect. But many of the cramps, so metta is the uncramped heart, many of the cramps can show up, and particularly when we start practicing. So if you've noticed today that your heart might have felt more cramped than usual, it's not because you're doing something wrong. It's because these things can show up. So I'd like to name a few of them before I talk a little bit about where we're headed, where we can go, what's possible for us. Practice is also a clarification of these bindings, the things that bind us from knowing and dwelling in our unlimited nature. So anybody not had any cramps today? It's fine if you didn't. Sometimes there can be days that look like that. You don't have to put your hand up. Um, can have been from the small irritation to the feeling of meanness to the boredom to the doubt to the whatever it may have been. So the first one I'll speak to is what in the tradition is called the near enemy of metta, something that looks like metta but is not metta, which is the kind of love that is more sentimental and has hooks in it, has a little bit more hooks in it. And in our practice, I think we can start to discriminate, know the difference. The kind of love that is attached and pulls on another or demands from another or ourself or pushes on another has a cramped quality in it. We can start to get the, the taste of that. It has, a, it has a bondage in it. We can start to feel it directly and start to know the difference. Sometimes it can feel like love when I remember my mum sometimes used to say, I love you so much I could eat you. And sometimes you may see that with a child. There's something so lovable about a small one. Some instinct in us, which isn't actually love as such, wants to consume them, (laughs) wants to eat them. They're so edible. That thing is so edible. That's not exactly meta, (laughs) right? The the respect, the hands-off, the meta isn't interfering. It's not... um, it's not demanding that that thing feed us in any way, feed our, feed ourself, feed our self-image, um, which is often what we do with attached love, isn't it? We want the other one to reflect well on us. Um, so we can start to have this on the map and start to discriminate for ourselves the difference, the differences. We might want to keep the other. You know, we think that that thing is mine, the thing that we love is mine, and this isn't meta. This isn't meta. And we might know this intellectually, but it takes our practice and our uh, care and heedfulness with ourselves to actually start to ex- experience the difference. For example, with my cat, sometimes it's very sentimental and attached, and it's okay, it's all right. 
But it's different when I want her to comfort me with her nice, soft, velvety black coat and where I'm really wishing her well. I can appreciate her softness. It's beautiful. But it's a different thing. Maybe you can sense the difference. Another interesting obstacle to metta is actually... Um, I'm, I was always surprised to find this out because we think, most of us, that we, that we like love. We would be interested in something that's real kindness, real love, real friendliness. We can also have an attachment to staying separate, to not wanting to feel the impact of genuine love. And I'll give you an example. Um, some years ago I went to a temple opening uh, of a, in a monastery and they had all these uh, elders, monks and nuns of the tradition, um, sitting up on the platform. Some very uh, old, experienced, seasoned practitioners who'd been through a lot of inner work, no doubt. And um, I saw this one little twinkling, radiant little monk, really old, sitting up there. And I could feel myself drawn. There was something really lovely and I could feel almost my body drawn to go a bit closer and pay respects and say hello. And, and as I got closer, I could feel that in me, which was, that's enough. That's as close as you need to get for now. You don't need to go any closer. And it was, what's that? That was my normal self-image of, well, I don't need him. It's okay. But something in the heart was drawn. And at that point when I recognized it, something was starting to tear up to melt a little bit. In the face of real, genuine love that is not hooking, the bound, the things that keep us separate, the ideas, the images that keep us separate cannot stand up because something in us is drawn to what's real. We love what's real. Our heart loves what's real. We can't help it. And if you don't believe me, don't. <laughs> Try it out. See what you think. We generally love what is real. We're drawn to it. But in the face of the real love, something that holds us separate starts to soften and melt. And we don't always like that. Does anybody recognize that around um, love? So there's a little, there, there is a risk, actually. We might think, oh, great, all I need is unconditional love. Is it really what you want? <laughs> because what it does is actually um, force us to look more deeply and start to let go of some of the cherished ideas we've had about ourselves and the world. Cherished ideas about ourselves and the world aren't necessarily nice ones. They, we can have cherished ideas about myself that I'm bad, that I'm wrong, that I'm unlovable. Many of us have those. So that can be one of the, the resistances. That what I've needed to, co- to constellate as a way to hold myself together that keeps me separate starts to soften and as it does I will encounter some of the pain that I have not previously been able to handle in my heart. Some of us have a, 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 a 
something that uh, obscures our uncrampedness is the way that we use our head to defend against dwelling in the heart, that our default is to kind of pop upstairs and reference the world through thinking about it only. There's nothing wrong with thinking. The Buddha was not anti-intellectual. He was very bright. But using this center, this head center, as a... um, as a primary medium for mediating the world keeps us at a distance and that's another place we can see probably today we start to practice and then hmm, what do I think about this is this any good here and we're in some dialogue about what's going on and not quite with our direct experience when we start to sit with ourselves. things get clearer. We start to see clearly some of these things that obscure our uncramped unboundedness. We believe them. We think, actually, other people might be uncramped and bounded, but I'm actually bounded. That's what happens first. I'm actually like this. I am incapable of better. I am bad. I am, you know, limited. Whatever it might be, we're believing, including... Beliefs like, I'm great, I am, the unlimited one, another kind of grandiosity. But as they soften, as they get seen, as we keep treading with our practice, step by step, phrase by phrase, coming back by coming back, we may touch, as I said, these places that may have been too much to feel once upon a time. And that is one aspect of our path, where we clarify all those things that are no longer true, actually. And there's a story. Um, a true story I'd like to read about this. Some of you may know. From a, taken from a hospice. And it's about a woman called Hazel. A woman called Hazel came into the hospital in a very contracted state. The nurses called her a real bitch on wheels. Few wished to spend time with her. All her life had been a struggle for control. All she did not want or could not have was judged and pushed away from her heart. All that she could get was grasped at feverishly. And so and she found herself dying alone in a great deal of pain. She had judged so many, so much, so often that even her grown children would not visit. For six weeks, her isolation and pain increased until one night she came to the point where she could no longer stand the suffering in her back and legs or the pain of her unlived life. Feeling like jumping out of her skin, she began to review her life amidst the pulsations of her pain. Never had it been so clear to her how her intense holding had created such pain. Feeling death approach, she remembered herself as a youngster, open and hungry for the world. She saw how she had closed down over the years. With a sigh, she let the helplessness wash over her, and exhausted, unable to fight another moment, she surrendered. She let go and died into her life, into the moment. Letting go into the pain in her spine and legs, she began to sense quite beyond reason that she was somehow not alone in her suffering. She felt what she later called the 10,000 in pain. 
she began to experience all the other beings who in that very moment were lying in that same bed of agony. At first there arose the experience of herself as a brown-skinned woman, breasts slack from malnutrition, lying on her side, a starving child suckling at her empty breast, spine and legs twisted in pain. For an instant she became this Ethiopian woman, dying in the mud. (coughs) Then there arose the experience of herself as an Inuit woman, lying on her side, dying during childbirth, tremendous pain in her back, hips and legs, dying the same death. Image after image arose. She was each, dying beside the others. She experienced the 10,000 sufferings simultaneously. The pain was beyond my bearing, she said. I couldn't stand it in any longer, and and something broke. Maybe it was my heart. But I saw it just wasn't my pain. It was the pain. It wasn't just my life. It was all life. It was life itself. As the days unfolded after this extraordinary experience, Hazel's heart opened more and more to all the others at the hospital. She asked after them constantly, and the room became a place where the nurses would come because it was a room of love. (coughs) Soon her children came to visit because of the warmth and surrender of her phone calls, responding to her plea for forgiveness. Her grandchildren sat on her bed, the grandchildren she had never met, the hearts she had rejected before they were born. For several weeks before her death, her room became a place of healing, of finished business and of universal care. The far enemy of metta, as it's talked about in the tradition, is hatred and can be something that might arise, aversion, any of the family of aversive feelings can arise, particularly when we're doing metta practice. If it's not arising for you, don't go looking for it, right? It doesn't have to arise. I'm pointing out some of the things that can arise. You don't need to go and dredge up anger in order to work on it. But if it arises, it's okay. So the whole family of aversion from irritation, scratchiness, frustration, um, what other kinds do you get? Anger, hatred, um, all of that spectrum. Objections to metta. Anybody had any objections to metta today? Doubts about metta. Ah, that won't really do it. Very nice, but doesn't really cut the mustard. When it comes to it, what about, and we'll think of a situation where you don't just say, may you be happy, you have to do something else. Doubts about metta. Mistrusts about metta. And often these point to places in ourself where it's not clarified yet, that there really is a place in us where we will, and, and it's quite universal in a way, 
split to some degree love and hate as two opposites, as two great opposites. And that sometimes we place more trust in aversion. Real metta is not the opposite of um, hatred. Hatred is something that arises. Uh, hatred is something, so is metta actually, but hatred is something that is based in a view that is bound in a wrong view actually. It's bound in the false notion that we look at deeply in practice of the separation between self and other. Metta arises when that duality actually is superseded in any moment. It is something outside of the duality of the normal ways we think of love and hate. And consequently, the hate does not overwhelm the metta. Real metta, as it clarifies, and I say real metta, we can uh, deepen in uh, uh, further and further um, clarifications of what the realness of metta is, where it's less and less bound, less and less obscured, and more and more powerful, consequently. As we clarify our own aversion and hatred, we become less afraid of our mind, we become less afraid of ourself and when we see it externally. And this is part of the path. It's not something we immediately necessarily know um, the first time we sit down or even the hundredth time we sit down on our cushion, but it's where we're headed. It's where we're headed when we sincerely practice. I remember doing a, a long meta retreat and uh, finding that every lunchtime when I'd walk back into the hall to do metta, this, this contraction would arise in my heart and this emphatic conviction arose in my mind, I hate metta. Has anybody had that yet? hate hearing about it. If they say it once more, I'm going to scream. If they say loveliness, I'm going to hit someone. You know, all of that kind of kind of dregs um, and pain of the aversive tendency. Some of us tend more towards aversion. Some of us tend more towards greed. Um, some of us apparently tend more towards confusion. But if you, we all we all have aversion. But for some of us, it's really a daily meal. Right? So we'll see it here. It's not a mistake that it arises. We're not trying to split that off. That's what the world that's what the kind of conventional worldly view is. It may arise and learning how to handle it within the context of the metta. It so that it doesn't overwhelm that intention. It doesn't mean we feel lovely. It might mean in that contraction when I hate metta arises, we are aware of it, we're awake to it, we still intend and incline towards this unbounded, friendly heart where there's even room for this painful contraction of hatred. Welcoming something like that is very radical because we fear, understandably, what that does in ourselves and the world, where that can go. 
But as we practice, we get more trust that there's a huge difference between welcoming something with presence and awareness and becoming something through confusion and being compelled. And this is where our freedom is. Someone spoke about it in the group today, actually. They said, um, I, I like being here because things that arise in my mind that, that arise at home that I usually act upon, I'm not acting upon them here. And he said, and they pass. And he, and he said, and that's really nourishing. Something in us can get nourished that can fatten up, actually, that is real, that is reliable, that is wholesome. almost enough of the obscurations, isn't it? Do you want something a little bit more cheerful? This is just a couple more, actually. Um, Main one that's really common for most of us is judgment, self-judgment. I should be someone different. I should be having a different experience than this one. Did that arise at all (laughs) for anyone today? The shoulds, the shoulds of what my experience should be. I'm on a meta retreat. I shouldn't be having this. I shouldn't be having fear. I shouldn't loathe anybody. From that perspective, we think that the meta is some kind of uh, another construction, but it's not. We can start to um, work with the judgment, let go of the judgment, have our experience as it is, and realize that the meta actually deepens as a result. But that's easier said than done. So we have to see and discriminate and recognize judgment when it arises. That's, that's criticizing us, beating us, blaming us, whipping us. And then we get this horrible extra kind of judge when we come to spiritual practice that's a spiritual judge, you know, judging us for not having enough meta, for not being still, for not being quiet, for, you know... As if it wasn't bad enough just to have a worldly judge that says you don't look right and you don't speak right. Now you don't meditate right and you don't do anything else right. We really need to see that. It breaks our heart. And defend ourselves. You know, in some of the temples, I remember one temple in Bali where there's all these kind of fearsome animals outside, not real ones, statues in concrete or something, with teeth and tigers and ferocious-looking things at the temple gates, keeping out those things that take us from our uh, birthright, actually, to know our uncramped heart. And the judge is one we need protection from ourselves in the end, to be able to see it and not break our heart. The Buddha had this companion. Have, you, have any of you noticed um, that you have the judgment and then you think you shouldn't be having the judgment? You're wrong for judging now. So not only did you have a worldly judge, then you got a spiritual judge, now you've got a judgment of your spiritual judge. right? The Buddha on the night of his awakening had this construction arise 
the judgment that said, who do you think you are thinking you can sit there and be free? It's a companion along the way. We need to learn to recognize it. It arose, but he did not become it. He did not place his allegiance there. That's just an old patterning that's trying to keep us limited. Out of fear, actually, when we look deeply. Out of fear because we're a little scared to open up. We're a little scared to enter the unknown where the reference points aren't the judge and what we, how bad we are and how good we are. That the reference points, the moorings, are let go of. And the Buddha said, I see you, Mara. I see you. In the teaching, the, um, the Buddha taught, we could say, two doorways of awakening. The Satipatthana, which is what we normally teach around in the insight meditation retreats. The Satipatthana, where insight, we could say, is the primary uh, penetrating vehicle into the obscurations <coughs> and the nature of reality. And he taught metta bhavana. And metta bhavana, the, the bhavana means cultivation, metta means friendliness. Metta bhavana as a pathway, as a way of knowing, as a way of having direct experience of the nature of things. That when the Buddha said, I see you, Mara, that capacity to see things clearly, which we associate sometimes with the insight practice, is not different. And I, I recognize this from looking at my experience and from hearing from um, a, a great friend and teacher who's a, a scholar and practitioner in the teachings, that the, um, that the mindfulness... The seeing clearly is not different in the end from the unbounded friendliness. When we're no longer holding things separate, we see them as they are, including that judgment. When we're no longer holding that separate, it does no longer has the authority to tell us who we are. It is seen in its correct perspective. It's understood as a conditional arising. And the heart is not cramped when we see judgment arising internally or externally from that place. I've mentioned it, but I'll just name it once more. One obscuration can be a doubt that I am lovable. I doubt my lovability. Very, very painful. As if we are outside of the party, in a way. But we're not, because lots of us have the same, <laughs> the same view. There's something we doubt about our lovability and we can find all the stories that prove that. Of course, we can download at will all the stories that confirm that. It's a very painful place in the, in the heart. 
that we will encounter along the way that will uh, present itself for our careful holding and handling. Seeing that with metta and clear awareness that this too is another construction due to conditions from our history or our tendencies that can also be seen and handled and held and a place where our metta and compassion deepens. So if you see that one, don't be surprised. You're not alone. But again, you don't have to go looking for it. It's not everybody's story, actually. It's many of our stories, but not everybody's. And the final one I'll mention um, is sometimes we hold back our heart because we're afraid that our love will be too much. Any of you know that one? If I really let myself love you, you're not going to like me. It's going to be too much. You'll be overwhelmed. You'll say, go away. Put your love away. It's too... And sometimes then we lock down on this natural capacity. There's... um. A lovely, famous song. Um, I can't remember who sung it. Nina Simone. <laughs> um, I wish I knew. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. You know that one. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. She has one verse that says. No, no, not to say. I'm not asking you to sing it. <laughs> I wish I wish I could share show or share all the love that's in my heart. There's one of the verse I wish I could share all the love that's in my heart. And then it's something that keeps us apart. Something about all of that that we either know or glimpse or sense is the potential of our heart. And we might tell ourselves the stories of how limited we are. But somewhere, probably each of us knows that we are a being of love, actually. Um, And just two things with that. One is that sometimes when that kind of big enthusiastic love comes up, sometimes it can be shrouded in a kind of childlike structure, you know, like a puppy like we kind of ba- want to bound towards the other one, we're so into them. Um, and indeed, it may well overwhelm them. <laughs> it may well overwhelm them. So You know, when sometimes the puppy gets up and licks you, and um, there's a lot of energy often in that. And it's a beautiful energy. And we can learn to hold it in places where someone can handle it, or we can handle it. And we can clarify, we can clarify and let that love mature. Um, the bigness doesn't necessarily, doesn't have to go because the, the meta is unbounded. But the puppy like, the puppy can also grow up. And that love can clarify and mature to be a well-wishing. Sometimes uh, I, I can see that that puppy quality is... Uh, can have a little idealization of the other. They are the best thing. They are the best thing. And it's beautiful. 
We don't want to squash that. But in metta there is not idealization. In metta we're not putting somebody up here as the ideal one and somebody down there as they're not really quite up to snuff. Right? The metta is a well-wishing for the very fact of being here, actually. It's, it's, it's equal, it's even, it's, um, it's unconditional. It's like the sunshine. It radiates on everything. It doesn't have a, something it prefers to radiate on, although <laughs> we could say it's not preferring to radiate on England at the moment too much in June. But that's taking it a little too personally. Um, the metta is really our the sunshine that we are. And the clouds come across and they obscure it and sometimes it feels like it's bound up in a tight leather corset around our heart. But the love is actually uh, here. It's not something we have to work and fabricate and manipulate ourselves and squeeze ourselves to get more loving. We stay with the intention of the metta. Sometimes we work with the obscurations and sometimes we don't. Sometimes there is an unhindered, natural unfolding of the metta with a few little obscurations here and there sometimes. It doesn't have to be dramatic. Sometimes it might be. Sometimes it's very quiet, slow, almost imperceptible that we're getting anywhere with it. I read this lovely thing from Suzuki Roshi. In any one moment that you're offering the metaphrase and you're staying with the practice, if we keep self-reflecting, if we keep looking around and saying, well, is it working? Am I getting somewhere? Am I boundless yet? You know, you know what that keeps doing. It keeps kind of you know, hindering the process. Like one of, one of my teachers who said when he was a little kid, he planted carrots and he was so excited that he kept pulling it up to see how big it had got, you know. So we have to learn to leave ourselves alone. But there is a cultivation and something does happen. And this is from Suzuki Roshi. He says, walking in the mist, you can't tell you're getting wet. I shouldn't use all these wet metaphors, should I, at this time? <laughs> Kirsten said, uh, remember I gave the metaphor earlier about let the meta come like this gentle summer rain, and it's like, hmm. <laughs> That's not the, moist metaphors aren't necessarily the ones that inspire us at the moment. Here's another moist metaphor. Walking in the mist, you can't tell you're getting wet, but when you go inside, your robe is soaked. Walking in the mist, you can't tell you're getting wet, but when you go inside, your robe is soaked. Sometimes it's like that. We just keep going. We keep inclining the mind, orienting ourselves around this beautiful intention. We don't have to feel something all the time. The inclination has its own power. We plant the seeds. We get moist we don't notice that our robe is getting wet. So where are we heading with this? Well, we're heading back home. 
we're heading here, and in fact a better metaphor than where we're heading is that we are unbinding. We're unbinding the heart. Heart in the teaching, um, the word uh, chitta is translated as heart-mind. They're not two different words in the Pali language. Chitta is the heart-mind. It's that sensitive, resonant capacity we have where we're uh, impressed by experience, impacted by things. Uh, It can be spacious at times. It can be contracted. The chitta is almost like the sensitive organism uh, that we are. And one lovely thing about metta, that, that it's not that easy to translate into English. Um, but the root word, which is mid, goes into the, the word some of you might know of mitra, which means friend. And the concrete denotation of it signifies, so the word root signifies growing fat. So there's something about metta where we, the heart, grows fat, it plumps out. It, um, together with that is the idea of spreading. Something spreads and radiates. We grow fat. It's like the heart gets saturated and no longer limits itself to this uh, idea of who we think we are. It grows fat, it spreads, and the meta spreads effortlessly. We take in or we spread and include more and more beings, right? So we work today from easy to self to the neutral person, and we'll continue with that. We recognize that we are the same kind as them. Did you get that at all? It's not like you have to wait for this until you're fully enlightened or whatever you think about is the goal of the path. This is something you might have sensed in the circle. There's someone who's never entered our gaze before, and we gaze upon them. We spend ten minutes with the person in the circle who was neutral, and we find we start to care about them. Did anybody notice that? That they stand out a little bit more in the dining room. It's like, oh, there you are. It doesn't have to happen immediately if that hasn't happened for you, but it's something that is cultivated. Something we overlook as irrelevant to us suddenly is within our field of care and concern. And it's not the care and concern that has that desperate, I really hope you're okay, I couldn't bear it if something happened to you. That's in a way a slightly more contracted version of the meta that is care and concern for things that are finite, us, things that are fragile, us, things that do not last forever, us, the care and concern for that which is mortal, that which is subject to birth, aging, sickness and death, that's us. One teacher begins his Dharma talks, dear brothers and sisters, in birth, old age, sickness and death. It's not a morbid reflection, it's, yeah, we're in this together. 
We're in this together. This is where our care and concern start to move to for the mortal, the finite, the fragile. Those things that we've held as outside of our sphere of care. And, you know, the more limited the sense of ourself is, you know, if I'm really, when I'm circling around a belief that I'm bad, for example, my world becomes very limited. When I take that one in, it's like, okay, that's one of the things that I think I am sometimes. Oh, and now there's this. And now there's this. Aha, and there's this. More and more I start to include other beings. So those who I've held outside of my sphere of care, my sphere of what I've thought of as myself, who are they for you? Who is it you hold as other in your life? As I'm not that, I'd never be like that. I would never do that. I'm not like that. Is it your inconsiderate neighbor? Well, I'm never like that. Is it the righteous people? (laughs) I'm not righteous. (laughs) We say righteously. And if we hang out with our own mind long enough, we'll see those things. Is it the fundamentalists we can't abide? And we sit here at Gaia House and suddenly it's like, shouldn't be like that. Nobody, they shouldn't do it like that, they shouldn't walk like that, shouldn't teach like that. It's like, oh, here's the fundamentalist arising in me. Right? That we're of the same kind. The potentiality for all of those things we see out there is in this mind. The seeds for the most beautiful arisings in the world and the greatest destructions and abominations. The seeds for those are in our minds. And practice sobers us up actually to realize what am I choosing where where am I inclining here because where I incline that's what gets grown So we practice going out in the mist. Going out in the mist is just coming into the meditation hall or just standing in the queue and just for one moment we remember, oh yeah, may you you be safe. May you be happy. These small, moist orientations start to plump and fatten the heart. And when the Buddha talks about metta, it's very simple, actually. It's very simple. He says, radiating one quarter, so one quarter of your radiation, with metta. Imagine one quarter of your uh, sort of infinite circumference around you. One quarter is imbued with metta. One quarter with compassion one quarter with joy, one quarter with equanimity. These four abidings of the heart that are unsurpassable, unbounded, unlimited, that can be cultivated, 
that is not for special people, that is our inheritance actually, for us to know for ourselves. And it takes time. We can have glimpses, immediate glimpses. The Buddha gives the metaphor of um, a mother and uh, the mother with her, her child looking over it, gazing over it, protecting it with her life because she knows partly what she knows directly through her concrete experience is this being is of her flesh and bones. That extraordinary extraordinary thing he says and so too will you gaze upon all beings that that knowledge that direct knowing that we are all made of the same stuff isn't just intellectual and isn't just if we've given birth but through direct knowledge and here's where metta and insight come together through direct knowledge, through direct immediate experience, it can be known in any moment. Maybe you've had glimpses of that when the veils lift, that we are of the same nature, that what what connects us is infinitely more deep than what appears to separate us, that the packages we come in and the things that snag us about whether I like this one or don't like that one or how they sound or what qualities they have, that's all surface. That something much more fundamental can be recognized and seen that wakes us up, that draws us further along the path to make that knowledge integrated so we can live from that understanding. So we gaze upon each other. We can practice it with that gaze of a mother protecting her child. Not an anxious gaze, sometimes that could be an anxious gaze. But the gaze of recognition that this is of the same nature as me. There I am in another form. Or here you are in another form. When you gaze at an object, you bring blessing to it. For through contemplation, you know that it is absolutely nothing without the divinity that permeates it. By means of this awareness, you draw greater vitality to that object from the divine source of life. Since you bind that thing to absolutely nothing, the origin of all, On the other hand, if you look at that object as a separate thing, by your look, that thing is cut off from its divine root and vitality. So let's bring that back to ourself for a minute. When we gaze upon ourself, because this is where we start, how we're attending with ourself. When we gaze upon ourself or parts of ourself as separate, like I don't want that bit or I should have this, we're cutting ourselves off, we're dividing ourselves up. We're fragmenting something that is not fragmented, and that's why it's painful. And yet, when we gaze upon ourselves, 
we can bring blessing to it. When we gaze upon ourselves, we can bring blessing to us. We can start to translate this metta with ourselves into our really ordinary experience. Holding ourselves dear, the Buddha said, because you hold yourself dear, you maintain careful self-regard both day and night. And if you're sitting there thinking, but I don't hold myself dear, that might be the feeling at times. But check out and see if it's the truth, because even if you've had some struggles today and feel like, well, it looks like I'm not holding myself dear, see how it is you feel about that. How do you feel about the fact that sometimes you reject yourself, that you hate yourself, that you judge yourself? Probably you care about that, or else you wouldn't be here. You do hold yourself dear. And because we do, we start to practice careful self-regard day and night, staying close to ourself, knowing ourself dearly. Last year I was on a course sharing a room with a a Dutch woman and it wasn't a silent retreat and I, I was in a partition part next to her and I heard her talking to herself um, at one point, coming in in the lunch period, saying, OK, my dear, what shall we do now? And I th- thought, as she walked in with somebody and I walked around the corner and she was talking to herself. What shall we do now, my dear? Right? This really kindly attention to herself. And there's many ways we can translate how the meta looks. doesn't mean you have to start talking to yourself. <laughs> it might. It might if that's a skillful means. But we can be creative about how that translates in these really simple, the way we open the door for the other and the way we open the door for ourselves. Have you ever thought about that when you're leaving here? You're opening the door for someone. Can we treat ourselves with that same courtesy and respect to be our own noble guest so that this metta can be for us, that we can really know that this pulsating along with life starts with ourself and starts with ourself here and starts with these other versions of ourself. I'll finish with the Metta Sutta from the Buddha, or parts of it. This is, this is what can be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let her be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in his ways. 
peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, the medium, the short or the small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. As a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart one can cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downward to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed up from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one can sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one with clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is free. So let's sit together for a minute. 